As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Um, Father, we come to the scripture, we do so uh, acknowledging that our need uh, uh, for you, our need of you, uh, is complete, it's total. Uh, you've said that strength is made perfect in weakness, and so even now we confess, I confess, we confess our weakness before you, our weakness of speech, our weakness of hearing, our weakness of the use of our minds, of the response of our hearts, our hearts that are so often weak and indifferent, so so prone to run their own way, to think our own thoughts rather than to run after you. And so, Father, we, we depend upon you um, always, but perhaps especially in these in these moments, take what is said uh, and speak through them. Take our minds, help us think through them. Take our lives and bring them into conformity to your word. Uh, even, Father, now, as we take it up. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Turn, please, to Luke. Gospel according to Luke in chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, please. I want to read uh, verses one through 13, Luke chapter 4, please. Familiar passage. But as I often look at familiar passages, I, I think how complicated they could be. So, Luke in chapter 4, please. And verse 1. Hear the word of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve and only him shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on, a, on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. Now, this Sunday, we begin, actually on Wednesday it began, but we begin today this season of the church year called Lent. Um, Lent is to Easter as Advent is to Christmas. All right? Put that in your head. You don't need to know these things, by the way. It's just helpful, I think. But, But Lent is to Easter. As, as, as Advent is to Christmas. During the time of Advent, we prepare ourselves uh, to hear again about and to understand and to trust in 
the incarnation of Jesus, the fact that the second person of the Trinity uh, became man, dwelt among us. The word became flesh, as the scripture says, and dwelt among us. And, and we, we, we do that. We make preparation by thinking of what the prophet said about this one who's to come and, 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 and even to think about his second coming and, and what is said about that. And so that helps us prepare this during this Advent season for understanding the presence of God with us, Emmanuel, the incarnation. Um, and so during this time of Lent, the church is often set it aside to, to think through, really, what we call the humiliation of Jesus. This time when the second person of the Trinity became man to dwell among us. And the scripture says, we often use this as a way to make profession of our faith. The scripture says um, that he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, being obedient even to the point of death on a cross. That, that, that humbling of Jesus, that humiliation really of Jesus, the Son of God dying on a cross. And so we, we, we walk through these weeks of Lent very often thinking about that, thinking about, about what led Jesus to that, thinking about, about, the, about the humiliation, this humbling of, of Jesus that led him to the, to the cross. And, and then we think of our own lives. We think of our own humility really before God, the fact that we need a savior, the fact that we've sinned against God, the fact that we're hopeless and helpless apart from him, the fact that if he hadn't come to save us, we'd be lost, uh, the fact that we need him utterly, the fact that we're to take up our own cross and follow him. And, and we think about that then in the context of our own lives as well. So what I want to do, if God will help me, during this uh, time between now and the celebration of this resurrection of Jesus is for us to walk through various passages in the Gospel of Luke, thinking upon, thinking upon, upon Jesus. This particular passage is what we call the temptation of Jesus. What is the temptation of Jesus while he was in the wilderness comes on the heels, we know, of his baptism. He'd been baptized and during uh, a few weeks ago, we considered that baptism of Jesus and, and it was there that God made that great affirmation of Jesus that you, it wasn't, this is my son, but you are my son. It was directed at Jesus. This, this affirmation from the father to the son wasn't so much an announcement to everybody, but it was something said to Jesus from his father. Others heard it, but it, it was to him. He said, you are my son, my beloved son. You're my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, in that expression, what we have is an affirmation to Jesus. He would know if he didn't know before he did, but, but now even more who he was and what he was to do. Because you see that expression, uh, you're my beloved son, was an expression out of Psalm chapter 2. And in the second Psalm, uh, it's, it's this declaration by God concerning his son, Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, we know then that the son of God who was to come would be the one who would inherit the nations. He would be given by his father the nations. And, and we know what that means. If you go all the way then to the end of the Bible in Revelation in chapter 5, we, we read the very fact that, 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 
the nations he's been given are, are people from every tribe and tongue and, and people and nation to, to redeem. He says, you're, you're, that's your kingdom. You're, you're, that's, your, that's what you've been given. And so Jesus, Jesus knows his identity. He's the son of God. And he knows his mission to redeem this people, to have for himself the nations, but also the means. Because in this expression, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, we find a very strong allusion to Isaiah in chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42 in verse 1, where the prophet is speaking. It's a great Advent passage, by the way, we've used it often. Uh, to speak of the incarnation, but he uses of Jesus, this one who is to come. He says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom, you could translate this variously in the ESV, it's in whom my soul delights, but in other versions, it's in whom I am well pleased. You see, and, and so Jesus not only knows who he is and what he's to do, he knows how he's to do it. Because you see, this piece of Isaiah, along with some others, are what we call the the, the prophecies of the suffering servant of God. And so at that very moment, just in that one expression, the father is affirming to the son, this is who you are, this is why you're here, and this is how you're going to do it. You're my son. You're begotten of me. You're God in the flesh. The nations will be yours, you'll redeem. And the way that you'll do it, you see, is through suffering, by giving yourself. And so all of that in, in that, that one expression. So, so now after this baptism, with this great affirmation on Jesus, and, and, and the Holy Spirit, you remember, descends on Jesus like a dove would descend on a person, descends and lights on him, if you will, uh, uh, comes into him even we could say upon him. The Holy Spirit is so full of the Holy Spirit, which is, you know, of all the expressions in scripture that, that bring smiles to our faces, is that one, so and so, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, completely characterized by the presence of the Spirit of God within him, was led by this very same Spirit. Another gospel writer puts it, driven by this very Holy Spirit. Into the wilderness. Now as soon as you hear that. You should feel a cold dark. You can't feel a dark breeze. A cold breeze. Of a dark place. Right? I mean that's the wilderness. In the wilderness. Lonely. To be tempted. By Satan. That's where it is. That's, that's where the spirit. Leads Jesus. At this point in time. Now, from all of this, uh, here, here's the questions that come to my mind. First, first this. Uh, given the fact that he was led by the Holy Spirit into this place for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. I, I take that to mean that this was necessary for Jesus. The Holy Spirit wouldn't lead him into a place and something happened to him. If it wasn't necessary for him. So I, I take that it's necessary. So if that's true, then why? Why was it necessary for Jesus at this point in time uh, to be in this particular place and to encounter 
and be encountered by Satan. Well, why was that? Why was that necessary? And secondly, <clears throat> how does that? The fact that this was necessary for him and that he did undertake it and, and, and did encounter Satan in this place and was victorious. How does that shape our lives? Those two questions. Are you with me? Why was it necessary for Jesus to be in the wilderness, to encounter Satan, to be tempted by him? And then how does that, how does that really shape our own lives. Well, here's some. I'm not going to get through all this today, by the way. Um, but, but that's where we're headed. But just some preliminary observations. First of all, as I read through the Gospel of Luke, what I find, especially in these opening chapters, is that Luke seems to be very interested in the humanity of Jesus. For instance, we read the Gospel of John, we would say, John seems very interested in the deity of Jesus. Not at the expense of humanity, but, but you just get the, the opening expressions of, 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 of the Gospel of John. You just, it's just flooded with a godness about him. Yes, a man is but a godness about him as well. But, 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 but when we read through the Gospel of Luke, it, it comes upon us that he's very interested in the humanity of Jesus. You have the birth narrative here, and, and you have even the, the, the note that, that Jesus was circumcised at the eighth day, and that he was presented in the temple as all infant sons and their mothers would be, uh, having to go to the temple to present the child, to purify the mother, and, and all of that. We, we have some boyhood scenes of Jesus so we don't have otherwise Jesus is in the temple at the age of 12 and, and we don't have that elsewhere and, and, and Luke includes that and he includes the expression that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man and not only that we have right before this uh, temptation of Jesus the long genealogy uh, of Jesus that, that ends with uh, this expression the son of Adam the son of God meaning that he traces Jesus all the way back to, to the first man to Adam and so so all of this to say remember uh, he's, he's yes God but, but also also man as well um, we affirm that we affirm the deity of Jesus we affirm the humanity of Jesus the Belgic confession, uh, an old Reformed uh, uh, Netherlands uh, 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 expression, uh, confession of faith, puts it like this. We therefore confess that he, Jesus, is very God and very man. That expression, very, like completely, totally. Uh, that's who he is. Uh, a poet has put it recently of Jesus in meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the God who is man. But but to Luke, at this point, there's a certain emphasis, we could say. He doesn't want us to miss the humanity of Jesus. And the question, why then, Luke, is that so important? Well, because it leads us up into this, this uh, fact of the temptation of Jesus, that it was real. That he, as us, is, is really tempted uh, here. And I think that's important because it's hard for me, at least, when I think about the temptation of Jesus, I must confess that it comes to my mind. I begin to think, really? I mean, you were the son of God. Is this really that hard? 
I mean, Jesus, you don't have a clue. You don't know what it's like to be me. You don't know what it's like to be tempted like I'm tempted. I mean, you don't have a, you don't have any bent towards sinning. You don't have any inclination to sin. There's no lever in you that loves to be pushed by sin and open the door to it like I have in me. And so, so really, Jesus, is this really, is this really real? Can you, can you really come and, and say that in some sense you represent me in these, in these temptations and do battle for me against Satan, uh, in these things when, when it's not, Really, part of your your nature in that sense. Oh, yeah, you're human, but but not like me. You're not fallen human. You don't have this sinful nature like I do. And and so, Jesus, how can this really be real? And, and I think Luke's setting us up. He's saying, no, no, no. He has to be human. This has got to be real for him. In fact, the author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews and uh, chapter 2 and verse 14. Uh, he writes, since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself, likewise, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power, uh, who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And this is it, you see, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, uh, the author of Hebrews says he had to be made like his brothers. If this is going to work, if the work of Jesus is really going to suffice for us, be sufficient for us, then he had to. Couldn't have happened any other way. Thus we say that all of this, the work of Jesus, hinges on him really being man. Really being human. Take that away, it doesn't work. Take that away, he's no savior. Take that away, he's no help to us. Oh yes, he's, he's divine, Another angle, but he must be. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. The reason is so that he might become a merciful and, and, and faithful high priest in the servant of God, service of God. You see, priests, if you read over in Hebrews chapter 5, priests were taken from the people. And the reason priests, priests were taken by the people is so that they could properly represent the people before God. In fact, so that they would have a heart to represent the people before God, so that they could actually empathize, sympathize with the weaknesses of human beings and, and honestly and, and, and sincerely and genuinely and passionately take all that before God. I mean, if you have a, a, a high priest that, that doesn't get it, then he's just going to be going through the motions. There's no passion there. There's no heart there. So no, 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 Jesus really does come and Jesus does really represent you. And he actually does then as you makes propitiation for the sins. And then verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is, when the scripture says he suffered when tempted, it's exactly what happened in Jesus. No matter how much we, we romanticize the son of godness of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and, and how this could be just sort of a, a, a really coasting temptation. It wasn't. It was He suffered in the midst of it. This was real. This was real. And, and that's what the biblical writers, that's what Luke wants to convey to us. This was really 
real. And I think the, the reason, one of the reasons the scripture goes overboard, if you will, to kind of help us with this is because they know it'll be difficult for us. He says, no, no, you've got to take this. You've got to believe this. You've got to know this, that it is really that which is really real. And, and, and so how do we wrap our minds around that? How do we wrap our minds around that? Well, one way I think is like this. To realize that this isn't the first time a real temptation came to a sinless human being. This isn't the first time that a real temptation came to a sinless human being. That sinless human being was Adam. He had, as far as we know, and again, there's great mystery here. It kind of begs the question, but, but at least it's precedent. It's a mystery to us. Why did Adam sin? I mean, he had everything going for him. I mean, poor Jesus was in the wilderness alone, hungry. Adam had Eve. And Adam was in the garden. And Adam had, wasn't hungry. He had everything available to him. He was a, could have been, at that moment in time, the most satisfied human being, uh, well, that there ever was. Well, he was sort of like the only one. But anyway, uh, that's the sense of it, you see. And so why? And he hadn't this, as far as we know, this inclination to sin. My point being just this, that if I think that was a real temptation, and I do because he fell for it, it kind of gives it away, then surely God, surely a man who's sinless can be tempted, really. And the other part of this is that, that you know, uh, Jesus knew, suffered longer with temptation than I do, because I give in way too early, right? It's rare, it seems to me, in my life uh, that I... I, I don't succumb to this temptation eventually along and along. I mean, uh, I, I don't usually fight it to the end. I, I sort of concede about two-thirds of the way through, or sometimes that's giving me way too much credit. But Jesus fought it all the way to the end. I mean, who struggles more in a tug of war? You know, a tug of war, you got a rope People on each side. Who struggles more? The person who holds on and pulls for about three minutes and goes, Boop. Or the person who holds on till the end. That person who holds on to the end knows the real struggle of it. Jesus knew the real struggle of it. He, he outlasted it. He, 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 he put Satan through the paces all the way to taking the best and the deepest and the longest and the hardest shot that Satan had against him. He held on to the very end. He struggled through all of that real, take by faith, real, and to the very end. And speaking of Adam, you see, the point of all of this, at least one of them, is that Jesus shows for us himself to be this second Adam. See, the first Adam came. And Satan came against him, Genesis chapter 3. And, and, and temptations came against this first Adam. Not unlike the temptation coming to Jesus. Did God really say? He questioned the very word of God with Adam and Eve. Did God really say you can't eat of this tree? Did God really say if you eat of this tree, you'll surely die? Did God really say this? And so putting, in, in a sense, uh, some, some doubt in their minds as, as to what the word of God really, really is. I mean, I, I read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
One of the reasons is to get in our minds about the significance, the importance of the word of God. And, and even as the, 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 the Moses wrote to the people, he's saying, you, you've got to hold on to this word. It's your life. And so, so, so that's how Satan comes against Jesus. He came against Adam in the same, in, in the same way. Adam sinned. And, and Adam was our representative. He represented all of the people, all who were in him, which was all of humanity. Now you may think, rats, if I'd have been there, I would have never fallen for that line. Uh, it's not fair for Adam to have represented me. Um, and we think about that because we have representatives in, in legislatures and, and so forth. And, and sometimes they don't represent us well. They don't vote the way we do. We would want to. Uh, so we think that's unfair. But, but when Adam represented us, he was made by God to be the perfect representative of all of humanity. So we can rest assured that if we had been Adam, we would have chosen the way that Adam did. Good news for us. Jesus comes as the second Adam, another representative who comes. And this, this representative, Jesus represents all those in him, all those the Father would give him, all those who were his people, all those who would believe in him. He represents all of, uh, all of his people, if you will. And in, in representing them, he chooses the way we should. Right? He chooses the way we should so so now when Satan comes up against him, where we realize what's going on here, this is that battle. It's happening again. The second Adam has come. He's going to create a new humanity in himself. And, and so so when when Satan comes against him, it's it's of vital importance. You see that the event takes place is of vital importance that that Jesus doesn't sin, uh, so that he redeems uh, this new. Humanity, as, as we have in, in Romans in chapter 5, verse 18. Paul writes, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You see, if there's... There are many wonderful little expressions in the whole Bible, but it's this one, for us, that should be really embedded upon our minds and our hearts. For us. When we think of Jesus, we should think for us. He for us. And that's the sense of it. He comes as the second Adam for us to undo all that happened with Adam, to, to undo the curse, to undo all of that so that he could reconcile us to God, so that a day would come when he could make all things right and all things well. But he wasn't only this Jesus, the second Adam. But he was also the true Israel of God. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find an expression of ancient Israel where God refers to this nation as his son, his firstborn. And in fact, when Moses goes to Pharaoh so that the people can go and worship, there's the, the, the sense is, let my son go. You see? And, and so that 
when Israel leaves Egypt, it's as if the Son of God is leaving Israel. I mean, leaving Egypt. Which is why, by the way, Jesus, when he was an infant with Mary and Joseph, was taken to Egypt. So that, as Matthew records for us, they could say of him, out of Egypt, I called my son. You see, Israel was to obey God perfectly. Israel was to be the very people of God. So, so Jesus comes as the new Israel, the real Israel, the true Israel, the true vine. See? And, and, and so he now must relive and redeem the whole story of Israel, the people of God. And so again, it's no big surprise that we have for 40 days, rather than maybe 40 years, but 40 days, he's in a wilderness situation, being tested, being tempted. They, the, the Israel of God in the old covenant, were, were 40 years in a wilderness and, and found various temptations. No surprise to us that, that, that what would come to Jesus is a lack of bread. Lack of food or, or, or temptations to worship other gods and all of that. And so, so, so here we find Jesus, really the real true Israel, and he comes on that, in that regard, in that regard as well. Uh, and so, so he comes. Now, how do you think? I'm just setting some stage here. Just hang on with me. I know what time it is. Um, how do you think these temptations came to Jesus? I mean, you ever think about that? I mean, there's Jesus in the, in the wilderness, 40 days fasting almost, uh, six weeks without food. Perhaps he had water. We don't know all the details of the fast. We don't know how all that came. But at the end, I love how Luke, but he, he didn't eat for 40 days, comma, and he was hungry. Really? Now, again, they, to, to, to just remind us, because I'm thinking, Jesus, this is a cakewalk. No pun intended. Uh, but uh, I'm thinking, this is easy for Jesus. He's the Son of God. And he said, no, 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 no. He was really hungry. He's as hungry as you would have been if you hadn't eaten for six weeks. Right? I mean, that's, that's the sense of it here. He was that vulnerable, that drained. Think about what he must have looked like at that point in time. Gray. Gaunt. Tired. A bit shaky. I don't think he was doing laps around the wilderness. He was sitting under a rock, probably, and leaning up against it. He wasn't laying there. I mean, not a pretty picture of Jesus in that particular setting. There he was, you see. This, this, this Jesus. So how did Satan come? Did he, did he come visibly, like in the Garden of Eden, he came as a serpent. Did he come visibly? Did Jesus really see him? Could he touch him? Could Jesus just sort of see into the spiritual realm because he was indeed the Son of God? Could he see that? Did, did he just hear a voice? Was it in his mind? How did it really come? And, and, and when it says that he took him to a high place where he could see all the kingdoms of the world, um, did, 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 did he kind of, was this like a, a transport of some sort? Did he, did he go to the highest, a high mountain higher than any other mountain around so they could see? I mean, that's a, they got to be up pretty high to see all the kingdoms of the world. I mean, really. Or, or, or they, how did he get to the pinnacle of the temple? I mean, did they fly there? Was it, or was it a vision? I mean, did he just see these things that, that somehow they come to light? There he was, wherever he was, and hearing the voice of Satan. Uh, we don't know, by the way. We have, I don't have any idea. 
how any of that took place. But, but what we do know is this, and this is how sort of bottom lining all of this. This was a real Jesus at a real moment in time with a real Satan and a real encounter. However, it took place just like in Genesis 3. We had a real Adam. And we had a real place. And we had a real Satan. And we had a real encounter. And the same thing here. However, that came about, however it was, whether it was by vision, or whether it was visible, or whether it was audible, or however it came about. That's just, just the point of it. it. It really did happen. Now, what really did happen? Now, this first temptation, this is all I'm going to get through today. This first temptation, you, you know it. The evil one comes to Jesus and says, if you're the son of God, and you get a sense when he said, if you're the son of God, there's a little bit of sneer in his voice. I mean, wouldn't there be? I mean, if you'd have walked into the wilderness that day and you saw Jesus in that particular situation, having not eaten for all that period of time, looking the way he must have looked, having not eaten for that period of time, wouldn't you have won? And he said, oh, I'm the son of God. Wouldn't have you said, really? I didn't picture the son of God like this. I sort of pictured you on a throne. You know, I sort of pictured you well fed. Uh, feasting, not fasting. I, I, I didn't picture you like this. If you're the son of God, then really, why don't you make these stones into bread? I mean, there's a sense in which uh, he certainly could make these stones into bread. I mean, he, was, he had that kind of power. In fact, Jesus would know that. In fact, there was a time later when people would be praising Jesus and the Pharisees would say, shut up the people. And he'd say, you know, these rocks obey me. If I shut them up, the rocks will shout. I, I think he figured, I, these rocks will do whatever I tell them. I could make these stones into bread. That's, that's, not, a, that's not a hard thing, really, uh, for Jesus uh, to make stones into bread. But, but, but he didn't, obviously. And what really was Satan after here? Well, certainly caught Jesus at a vulnerable point. Certainly this temptations in the midst of the context of that, of that hunger. He certainly would need bread and all of that. But, but I, don't you think there's more to it than that? Because, you know, Jesus knew his mission. But he also knew the means by which he would accomplish his mission. And he also knew that he would need to suffer to accomplish his mission. And he also knew that he would need to obey his father to accomplish his mission. And so Satan comes along, you see, and he says, I don't want you to accomplish your mission. Because that was the MO of Satan all along. Now, ironically, Satan played way into the hands of accomplishing the mission of Jesus, of getting him killed. But, but, but you might remember there was a time when Jesus said to his disciples, he said, he said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. And I'm going to um, be uh, rejected by the elders and the scribes and the chief priests. And I'm going to die. And the third day I'm going to rise. And you remember what Peter said? He said, oh, no, you're not. He said, you're not going to die. And you remember that Jesus attributed that to Satan. Because that's Satan's thing. No, 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 you can't do that. You, you can't, no, 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 because if you do that, no, you can't do that. I've got to keep you from doing that. And so, so here he is in this time. So what's he doing? He's trying to keep Jesus from that. And so, so really that's the point of it. And so he's saying, listen, prove to me that you're the son of God. Prove to me that you're the son of God by making these stones into bread. Prove to me that you're the son of God by, by not suffering. Prove to me that you're the son of God by, by using your power to take care of yourself. 
not that you came to serve, not to be served. So, so, so use your power. Take a shortcut to all of this. You, you can take a shortcut to this. You can prove that you're the son of God by just making the stones and the bread. Who, who else could do that? And, and don't you deserve that? I mean, after all, you're the son of God. I have to be honest with you, I'm Jesus, and I have plenty of evidence to prove that I'm not. But if, if I were Jesus, I would want to do that just to shut him up. I'd want to do that just to say, listen, all right, I made those stones into bread. Now, be gone with you. Leave me alone. That temptation, you see, the shortcut, the word of God, the shortcut. That which God says is really real and really true and how we're to accomplish it. I mean, Jesus goes back, as we know, and he, and he quotes from, from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And, and it says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, you know the rest of that. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't just say that. I can't just say man shall not live by bread alone. I have to also say, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I mean, it just all goes together. Uh, and, and, and that's the sense of it. You see, now, when... That was first penned by Moses. He was writing to the Israelites. And, and what he said to them in their wilderness experience is that here's why this happened. That wilderness experience, Israel, happened to you so that God would be able to test you to see what's really in your hearts. To see if you would trust him. To see if you would follow him. To see if you would depend upon him. To see if you would obey him. And so he took you into a place where there was no bread. Now he would give you bread. And he would give you bread for 40 years. It was called manna. And he would give that bread to you for 40 years. Why? He would give you that bread for 40 years to show you that he provides. Now why did he do that? Well he did that because a day would come when you'd enter the land. And when you would enter the land, what would happen is that he wouldn't give you manna anymore. He would give you another means to get bread. And the means that he would give you to give bread is the normal means to get bread, which is work. And so you'd work and you'd be successful because he'd bless you. And in your success, you'd forget him. You'd think, oh, it's my power and my strength and my wisdom that got us this bread. And then you know what would happen? You'd lose everything. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It isn't about the bread It's not about your health. It's not about your wealth. It's not about your security and all of that. It's not about your stuff. It's about the word of God. It's about trusting him. It's about depending upon him. And Jesus, if you'd make these stones into bread, that would work right into Satan's hands. Why? Because it would show that you're not really trusting your father. It would show that you're really trusting yourself. It would show that, that you're not going his way, but your way. And at that moment in time, Satan would have, have him. And you know, at that moment in time, Satan has us all the time. And we shortcut the word of God and follow our own way. I mean, frankly, sometimes I plead with Jesus to do the very same thing. I say, you know, if you're the son of God, you could change my circumstances right now. If you're the son of God, you could make this so much better. And implicit in all of that, I'm saying is you're really not the son of God. Because if you really were the son of God, and if you really did have this power, if you really did love me, then I wouldn't be in this situation. And I go, all right. And he said, you know, Bill, it's not about your situation. 
It's not about your bread or your lack thereof. It's about whether you trust me. It's about whether you're willing to live according to my word. You see, there are times in our lives we're lonely. And we know what the word of God says about relationships. We know what the word of God says about even sexual relationships. But we think, you know, I'm lonely if he were the son of God. So what do we do? Well, it's easy to shortcut all of that and become unlonely using means that are contrary to the word of God. Over in business, we, we say, but, but, but I need to make a profit because I have a family to support. I employ people. I, 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 I serve. I, I provide a good service. But, but the profits aren't there. But, but if I did this, and I know that's not really according to the word. But if I did this, then... And if you were really the son of God, you'd want me to... In ministry, we face the same kinds of things, we think. We want people to know Jesus. We, we want people to, 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 to really worship him. But, 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 you know, the world doesn't understand us. The world doesn't buy our definitions. The world doesn't buy how we do what we do. And so, so really to, to, to help all of this work, to get more people in, to, then we, we should... And you know, then you say, I... It's interesting. There was another time... That this same temptation came from Satan, but not directly, but through some other people. There was a time that when Jesus was on the cross, we have it in Matthew, we have it in Luke as well, but here's Matthew. Jesus is on the cross and he writes, and those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, you would have destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him now. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires. For he said, I'm the son of God. And people said, Jesus, if you'll come down off the cross, we'll believe you. No, I'm thinking, that's what I want anyway. I want them to believe me. I, I, I could prove to them that I'm the son of God. Who else has jumped off a cross before in the middle of their death? I mean, surely they'd, they'd, they'd say, oh, you're the son of God. And you know what? They wouldn't. And if they did, they'd be wrong. Because to be the son of God, if he is the son of God, he'll stay there. Is he, he proved to be the son of God, not by making stones into bread. He proved to be the son of God, not by alleviating his own suffering. He proved to be the son of God by dying, by sticking it all the way through. I say, no, certain Satan, I know the word of my father. I'll trust in him. I won't listen to you. Because I realize it's not about bread. And bread comes and goes. It's about the word of my father. You know, on another occasion, Jesus would say to his disciples, he says to us, don't worry about what you eat, what you wear. 
Now, if Jesus would have made the stones and the bread, I would have said, that's easy for you to say, Jesus, because you have the power to make stones and the bread, and I don't. But he didn't make the stones and the bread. He says, I know what it's like to be without food. I know what it's like to be without bread. I'm telling you, don't worry about that. That doesn't mean don't work and all that, but you get the point. Don't worry about that. So what do I worry about that? What do I worry about then, Jesus? And he said this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, if you do that, the bread will take care of itself. Because what's really important is seeking the kingdom of God, the righteousness, joy and peace and patience and love and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and self-control. Seeking first the righteousness of the kingdom. That's the word of God. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. After giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given to you. By the way, this will prove to you that I'm the son of God. This Same way he took the cup after giving thanks. This too he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And do this in remembrance of me. The apostle said, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. In declaring the Lord's death, what we're declaring is, he's the son of God. He died for us. He's the second Adam. He, he won the day for us. He's, he's the true Israel. He, he, he is the very son of God and we his people. This is the word of God. Jesus died for us. We need to listen to that. We need to hear that. We need to trust that. No shortcuts. No other way. No other savior. Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us. That you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that We know we're in the very presence of Jesus, set it apart in such a way that we know that he is the son of God. The savior of sinners like us. The one who reconciles us to the father, the one who redeems, the one who empathizes, the one who for us has resisted every temptation. Who for us has died for every temptation we did not resist. We're grateful, God. And Jesus, we pour out to you even now. As we're sitting, even as we're walking to this table, as we're walking back to our seats. Pour out to you now the troubles of our lives. We know you understand. We know that you empathize with us in our weaknesses. We know that you've suffered in every way that we've suffered. Yet the good news for us is you suffered without sin so that you can not only sympathize with us, but you can also help us. And so, Father, we pour out our lives Jesus, we pour out our lives to you to help us in this 
time of need. Help us, we pray. Be with us now as we come to this table. Give us great assurance. Jesus said, you are the Son of God. There is life by believing in your name. And this I pray in Jesus' name.